happening. Good morning. There it is. Hi, everybody. Uh, kind of want to comment on Jalen calling himself booable, <laughs> which we were saying sounds like a lovely nickname for, for Jalen from now on. <laughs> booable. Have you seen the meme where the wise men are giving presents to Jesus? They say, you do understand this is for Christmas and your birthday, right? <laughs> Have you seen that? I thought of you when I saw that. It's pretty good. Anyway, um, that's all the stand-up material I have. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we are starting our season of Advent here. Advent is, uh, is a word, it's a Latin word, um, right? <laughs> it's a word from the Latin, at least, that, that means arrival. It means a, a kind of anticipated arrival. That's what Advent is about. And it's the season leading up to Christmas. It's the season leading up to, to the arrival of Jesus. And traditionally in church history, churches all over the world and in all different kinds of traditions have observed Advent, and, and I'm careful with how I say that, um, rather than celebrated Advent, observed Advent, because there's, there's really three different arrivals that it's talking about. One is the arrival of Jesus, the first one that we think about, the arrival of Jesus on Christmas, which happened you know, 2,000 years ago. But Advent is also meant to be a looking forward to the arrival of Jesus again in human history. And when we leave out that arrival um, sometimes we can leave out the realities of what we live in now, which is a world that in so many ways, in spite of the first arrival of Jesus, remains broken, marred by sin, where, where death and rebellion and decay and sickness and all of these things still remain, where we still sing, um, you know, uh, may his blessings flow far as the curse is found as the curse is found, because there's a second arrival that is out in front of us that we still anticipate. This is why we don't necessarily just celebrate Advent, we observe it, because when we observe it, we observe the fact, we look around and we say, man, the world does not bear evidence that Jesus has come in the fullness that he will come one day. But there's a third Advent, if you caught what I said there. So there's the arrival of Jesus in human history, there's the second coming of Jesus, and then there's the arrival of Jesus here and now, in our stories, in real time and space, in, in the places of both heartache and joy of our own lives. And Advent is meant to be an acknowledgement of all of that. Fleming Rutledge, who's a, a great Bible teacher, you'll hear me quote her a lot through this series. I, I find her just incredibly helpful in, in thinking and conceptualizing what Advent is. And I couldn't more highly recommend it. If there's one book I would recommend in Advent, it's Fleming Rutledge's book, literally called Advent. It's a collection of her teachings over the years and articles she's written and things. She's a great theologian. One of the things that she says that's just so apparent in the text that we'll talk about today is um, that there's two, I think she calls them, there's two faces to Advent. One is the face of light, the face of the arrival of Jesus, the face of joy, the face of Merry Christmas, the face of... Christmas lights and decorations and gift giving and all of the merriment of Christmas. But there's another face of Advent, which is the face of darkness. And so there's this light and darkness. 
And the darkness is the reality that Advent, by its sheer meaning of arrival, has this, this deep awareness that we are still waiting, that we are still in a posture, both individually and as a human community, of waiting. And that waiting is really hard. And that waiting can feel really isolating and really dark at times. And what we see so beautifully in this passage that, that Patty read for us right here at the beginning of the Gospel of John as we see these two faces so beautifully articulated and, and sort of what they have to do with each other. So I'll just say two more things by way of introduction here. One is that um, we're going to be in the Gospel of John for a while together as a church. And so the most scholars break up the Gospel of John between chapters 1 through 12, which is kind of the life and ministry and miracles and, and interactions of Jesus with people. And then the latter half of the, the Gospel is more uh, strictly focused on both the last night of Jesus' life, the, the, what people call the upper room discourse, conversations he has with his disciples, and then his crucifixion and resurrection. We've actually looked in some detail over the years at the latter half. We've never really considered the first half. So we're at least going to do the first half. All to say, this, this opening Advent series here is also the opening of a much longer series that we'll be in basically through the, the winter and spring of this coming calendar year. But I wanted to more slowly walk through John 1, because if we went through all of John at the pace we're going to go through John 1, we'd be in the Gospel of John till you know, 2027 or something. And so we'll go quicker from here forward. But what's so powerful about John 1 is it's like a seed in which all of what will blossom in the rest of the gospel, and a gospel is just a, a, a telling of the life of Jesus according to a particular author. So you have the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to, so this is the gospel according to John, and John happens to be, as far as we can tell from all the gospel accounts, Jesus' kind of closest friend, his his. Uh, his best friend, um, you can think of John as. And what's so interesting about the Gospel of John is it's written much later than the other Gospels, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's written towards the end of John's life. And if you even think about that, this is Jesus' best friend who has now spent decades of his life reflecting upon his experience of Jesus when he was here, and also reflecting upon the impact of what Jesus has done in the you know, 30, 40 years since he's been resurrected and ascended. And so what we get in the Gospel of John is a more, the easy way to say it is like a more theological telling. It's much less uh, like the Gospel of Mark, especially it's like this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this. It's like journalism more so, whereas John is more reflective. He's, he's more theological is the way to say it. There, there's more going on. He packs more into it. The, the, there's these beautiful structural things that a Bible geek like me just loves, all these ways that it's structured. But for our purposes this morning, it means that something like the first couple sentences of this book that has taken him decades to write about his very best friend who he believes is the most important person who has ever lived is just packed with significance and packed with meaning. It's like, I started to say, it's like a seed within which all of what will blossom in the rest of the gospel is contained, but in massively condensed form. So let's read through these early chapters. And, and here's, or 
excuse me, early sentences of this first chapter. Here's what we're going to talk through this morning, is these opening sentences of the Gospel of John reveal to us the true nature of Jesus, the true nature of the world, and our true nature. That's, that's basically where we're headed this morning. True nature of Jesus, true nature of the world, and our true nature. So he starts, in the beginning. What does that make you think of? Good, more Bible geeks out there. Well done, right? Makes you think of Genesis 1. Um, we'll talk about why that is, but notice that that's how he starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, in case you missed it. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Can you say that? Go ahead and read that. Ready? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Keep going. And the Word was God. Okay. Who is this talking about? Who's the Word? Jesus, right? This is, this is the Son. This is in classical Christian theology, the, the second member of the Trinity. You have God the Father, and this is speaking of God the Son. And it talks about Jesus as the Word. Now, it seems to be two major things going on here. One is that the Word was a very familiar category in kind of the philosophical musings of that time. Not particular to any one view on philosophy, but just kind of a, a commonly talked about term within just philosophy and worldview and, and sort of what smart people talked about at that time. And the way that it was used was the word in the original Greek, the lagos, is the, the inner logic of the universe the way things work and why they work the way that they work. Trying to piece together, this is, this is the structure of reality. And so the Stoics had one view of what the structure of reality, what the word was, what the word of the universe, what the word of reality was. The Epicureans, right? Like if, if you know anything about ancient Rome, like all of these actually use this term as their way of trying to grasp at what, what's the core of everything? What's the core of reality? So John is at least in conversation with this surrounding conversation, and he says radically, the word is not a concept. The word is not a philosophical category. The word is a person. It's a him. The great philosophical question throughout the ages has been, why is there something instead of nothing? That is the philosophical question at the base of everything. Why is there something instead of nothing? And the answer that John is giving is because in the beginning was the word. What this is saying is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Which notice is an implication that he himself was not made, okay? Which is wild. This is also saying something profound about who Jesus is and who God is prior to creation itself. 
Now, if you're with us in the intellectual uh, 202 discipleship course this last semester, we talked a lot about the significance of this. And I don't have time to go into an hour and a half lesson on the Trinity, unfortunately. Um, But what's being said here is that for most of us, and, and I'm saying most of us in terms of those who have been around Christianity for a while, those familiar with the Bible and Christian teaching and all that, I wonder if you're like me in that when you think of God at his like essential essence, like, like when I think of what God does, who God is, what do I most fundamentally think about? For me, the first thing that used to come to mind before this was corrected me very recently was that God is creator. He's the originator of all things. He's the source of all things, right? Like even, even some sort of um, interesting ways in which Western culture has incorporated Eastern teaching would say like, yes, God is source. He's creator and all of that. But actually what this passage is saying and what the entire scriptures are saying is that that's a, that that's a, it's a mistaken way to think of God in his essence because God actually existed before creation. And God was someone before creation existed. And if God at his most essential nature is creator, it means he needed creation to be who he was. Get that? It means he's dependent on us. He needed us to be God. What the scriptures are saying is that there's actually something more essential about who God is because God's very being predates creation. And here's who God always was. Father and Son and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with one another. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That what's most essential, now, now that might sound like high fluent theology, and you might be sort of uh, feel like we're up in the clouds, but check this out. What this means is that what is at the heart of ultimate reality, the inner logic of all things, the word, God himself, is a relationship. It's a loving, perfect relationship. Is the inner logic of all things. If there's a source, it's a source that predates the creation itself in love for, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what this is saying. This is saying, therefore, when we think of God, our first thought shouldn't be, in the beginning, God created the world, and then God became God by creating the world. No, no, no. There was something before the beginning of creation. It was a perfect, loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then out of the overflow of that relationship comes creation. God does not become God because he creates. He was already God, and he was God in perfect relationship father and son. That's what this is saying. Saying that's the inner logic of all things. That might not hit you now as profound. That's one of those like you'll be driving home and be like, wait, (laughs) what was that thing, right? That is worth meditating on, the significance of that. There's also very obviously going on here, not just conversation with the surrounding philosophical conversations of that time, but clearly by your quick response to in the beginning, what does that make you think of? It makes you think of the biblical story, and particularly the biblical story of creation itself. So now, here's what's interesting. When we get into creation, how does God create? Like, what's the mechanism by which he creates? Say it louder. You're all saying the right thing. Yeah, he speaks, right? 
It's his word that creates. When he speaks, let there be light, there is light. When he speaks and says, let there be flying things in the air and swimming things in the sea and creeping things on the land, it happens. All of it comes into existence. It's his word. And John is saying, that word was also a person. In fact, it's him grasping after how do you communicate this extraordinary mystery that's at the heart of how Christians understand, how the scriptures understand who God is, that God is both this perfectly united being such that we can say that God is one and yet distinct in three persons. And think of how much this works. Is there anything more tightly wedded to your deep identity than what comes out of your mouth? Than than what you say, right? Your thoughts and your desires are expressed into the world largely by what you say, right? That's what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is the very expression of the will, of the heart, of the thoughts of God. That's what you're witnessing in Jesus, right? When, when God's word goes out in creation, exactly what God wants to have happen, happens. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the sending of God into the world to accomplish exactly what God wants to accomplish. He says it was there from the beginning. And so he says, in the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was God. In other words, perfectly, here's, here's how one theologian, you end up having to talk like this about such a, a mystery like this. The word that Jesus does not by himself make up the entire Godhead, nevertheless, the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead belongs also to Jesus. <laughs> We said in our discipleship course that at some point, the Trinity, you can't reduce it down to simple analogies, the whole like, you know, God is like, uh, he's like water, you know, he's two parts hydrogen and one, it's like, no, that's actually called partialism. Um, and there's all these heresies that come from, so we're always grasping after language to say, how can something be both one and three? And sometimes the scriptures outdo our attempts at cute analogies. And he just says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Deal with it. <laughs> right? Like, figure that one out. The biggest implication of this, so this is who Jesus is, right? This is who Jesus is. Is, in some ways, he's trying to Take us up as high as we can go. Get as much altitude underneath our feet. Get us as breathless as he can with the heights of who this one we're about to contend with is. Because we will, we will hit the earth pretty quickly when we start talking about the story of Jesus. Because the story of Jesus very, very quickly becomes very earthy, right? Becomes very gritty. Becomes very, right? It's, it's why the... Oh, it's not up. But it's why, right, we, we're using a manger, a, a dirty, dingy, animal farm trough 
is where Jesus ends up. But he's saying, you got to know, there it is. Well done, Mike. You got to know who this one that we're contending with is. You can't forget that we're dealing with the pre-existent son of God. This is the true nature of Jesus. Here's the biggest implication though, church. And here's why John doesn't say up there. Is this means that not only does Jesus perfectly reveal who God is, or, or not only is Jesus God, but everything that Jesus is is who God is. We temp- tend to emphasize Jesus is God. I want you to click that. I want you to flip that over for one second and say, what does it mean for your view of God if I said God is Jesus? God is Jesus. That everything that we will experience of him Biblically, over this next month, over the next bunch of months that we'll be contending with him, he is perfectly doing what God would do if he were in the exact situation that Jesus was in. This is not, this is not just God's best representative. This is not God's PR team. This is, this is not God's best shot at representing himself. This is the word made flesh. You are watching God. Because here's my favorite thing that happens throughout the Gospel of John, because it's exactly what I would have done, and I can't help but think it's exactly what you would have done. Jesus is going around. He's slowly revealing, especially to his inner circle, this is who I am. This is is my true nature. I was there before the foundation of the world. For Abraham was, I am. Like, this is who you're dealing with. And do you know what they keep asking him? Cool, cool. Could you show us God? Yeah, but what's God? If God were here, what would, what would he do? Do you know what Jesus' answer consistently is? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you have seen, we are so tightly bound together. I am the word of God. I am the thoughts and heart of God perfectly expressed in the world. What God wants to accomplish is perfectly accomplished through every decision, every thought, every interaction, every act that I do is what Jesus is saying. And I think sometimes what we can do is we can think like, oh man, I wish God was more like Jesus. You ever had that thought? Like, oh, there's big, bad, scary God who we never know exactly what he's doing. We never know exactly what's going on with him. And then there's lovable, huggable, wonderful Jesus. And I just wish, just wish like I knew with certainty that Jesus, like, like the one that, that I feel more comfortable with, was going to God. And he's like, you know, God, I got some tips for you. Like, I, no, 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 no. That's to get it all twisted. Jesus says, I only do, this is also in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. God is Jesus. That's not a heretical statement. That's a thoroughly biblical orthodox statement. Now, it might mess with you a little bit, but it's what is being said in just these couple of verses. And so if you're, you'll be asked this in, at least in our discipleship course, but I wonder if if anyone's ever asked you this in other, you even hear this asked outside of Christian circles, which is, what's your view of God? When you think of God, what do you think of? 
may I propose to you that the most thoroughly biblical answer to that, the most truly Christian answer to that is, oh, I don't need a conception of God. I, I, actually, I actually can read about him. My concept of God is Jesus. And he's not a concept, right? Again, hear that. We're always trying to talk about concept and source and energy and what's the vibes of the cosmos and all that stuff. It's like, no, it's a person. And he walked among us, and we have seen what he is like, and we have seen perfectly the thoughts and hearts of God and what it would accomplish if it was one of us. So I don't have a concept of God. I've got God in flesh. I've got a person who I can name who lived and who walked among us. So when I think of God, I think of Jesus is my conception of who God is. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made, which is like one of the most awkwardly worded sentences, right? You're like, not anything, right? What's he saying there? What he's saying there is, again, he's responding to some things in the culture at that time, which said that basically whoever created the world came to the world um, and in this sort of chaotic, call it primordial form, and then had to wage war with these forces of, of chaos and ultimately vanish. Like every creation myth of, of that leading up to that time, like every creation myth has some version of that. John is saying, yeah, that's, that ain't it. That, that ain't it in the Christian telling. And that's what he's saying in this awkwardly worded sentence. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What he's getting at there is, if it's in creation, it's from Jesus. If it's in creation, it was sourced in Jesus. This is the, the Christian doctrine. I'm giving you a lot of $10 words here today. Welcome to Jake as well. Is, this is uh, the classic doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. That nothing preceded God. That you had God, and then you had God creating. And so this is saying all of creation belongs to God, came from God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life. Again, the inner logic of creation. What I mean, think about this. The, again, a core philosophical question throughout millennia is like, what's the deal with human beings? Like, why is there this life, this sentient, right? Like this reasoning, this we're aware of ourselves, right? And various things are offered in that um, of how we came to the place that we came. But really irreducibly, like even the most skeptical materialist person has to deal with how extraordinarily unique the human machine is and how unique our minds are, and how unique our, our sense of ultimate things is, and the questions that we ask that clearly nothing else in creation is asking. And I think that that's what's being gotten at here as, as what this life is. It's, it's, it's the life animated by God that, that we'll get to in the Gospel of John, really by the Spirit. And it says that very life only exists because Jesus was the source of it. And apart from Jesus, that life doesn't exist. And he's going to compare that, that life and light. He's going to toy with this imagery. Again, classic imagery, right? Star Wars, um, any of the Marvel comics, right? Light and darkness. We, we always have that contrast, and he's, and he's picking up on that here. And what he says is, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness had not, has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness. So this is, talked about the true nature of Jesus. Now we're going to talk about the true nature of the world. 
And this says that the true nature of the world is best understood as darkness. This is the world that we live in. That light and life was there at creation. And then darkness pushed in. If you think about what darkness is, what is darkness other than the absence of light? That the very thing that was sourced in God, that came from the perfect overflow of the light and life that was in God, took on a different kind of nature, ultimately. And look, I'm not here to solve and answer all the questions, nor is this text here to solve and answer all the questions of why that is. But, but that's what John wants us to grapple with right here at the beginning of the gospel, is that what Jesus entered into was a world utterly overcome, seemingly, by darkness, by death, by disease, by sickness, by all kinds of things that don't belong to the life and light that God originally intended. And one of the ways in which I think the church best serves the world in a season like Advent is to not act like this isn't true. Because what Christmas is to the world is largely a time in which we all close our eyes and we say, Merry Christmas, right? Like everything's great. And then if you're someone who's in a really difficult place, if you're someone who's experienced loss recently, if you're someone who doesn't feel particularly merry, if you're someone who feels isolated and alone in all of this, that cultural covering of the eyes has a particular weight to it where that darkness just feels more profound. As the people of God, we of all people should be able to say that Advent is a season both of joy that's over our shoulder because we know that Jesus came, of hope that's out in front of us because we know he's come again, and of lament here and now because he's not here yet. And because the world is still in darkness. And because death and sin, and rebellion, and war, and injustice, and all of these things still very much characterize the world such as it is. And the Gospel of John will not turn its back on that reality. It will remind us again and again, this is the world, and, and look, this is, this is the view of the scriptures, is this is the world as we have made it. God created the world with certain intentions, with certain light and life. What we have done with that world, and every single one of us is complicit in this in some way, is we have chosen darkness. We have chosen our own definition of light and life. We have said, no, we think that life is over here. And that life, that false life, that poor choice, actually ushers in darkness, whereas the choice of life over here ushers in the light of darkness. Jesus, right? Like, this is our doing. This is the world as we have made it, is darkness. But can I tell you today that what this verse says is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's the beautiful thing about this verse. This is a grammar thing. Is everything before this is past tense. He was in the beginning. He was, he was, he was. Now all of a sudden we get a present progressive, which means what this says is the light shines in the darkness. The light continues to shine. The light is shining now and continues to shine. One of my absolute favorite scholars on 
the, the gospel of John, let me find it, is he says, what he has people write in their Bibles, and if you're a Bible writer, he says, please write where it says the light shines. Write somewhere in there. Write it in the margin. Write it in a carrot. Write it in between the world. Shines and in. Write shines on. And then he says, and then if you're really bold, draw nice and big in the margin, even now, with an exclamation point. The light shines on even now. And here's what's not happening. The darkness does not overcome the light. The darkness still exists, can't overcome the light. Here's the extraordinary thing about darkness. Darkness can't push back. Do you know that? That's not how it works. We don't put the lights on in here. It gets so bright, and then all of a sudden, it's like, ooh, the darkness doesn't like it, and all of a sudden, it comes out of the sides, right? Like, that's what happens in, in Lost, right? Like, the smoke monster, like, darkness pushes. That's why it's scary, because that don't happen. Darkness doesn't push back, right? The biblical worldview is not light and darkness are at war and, and, and in perfect balance, right? Like some Eastern religions will say that. That's not the view of this. This is saying light shines in darkness and light does what it does. It dispels darkness and darkness doesn't push it back. Darkness doesn't win. The best that darkness can do is snuff out the source of light. Y'all know the story? The darkness thought it had snuffed out the source of that light. This is Advent, but can I talk about Easter for a second? <laughs> right? Because what ultimately happens is what appears to be the snuffing out of the source of that light is just the preamble to that light's victory. And here's the reality. Jesus didn't resurrect back then, and so we say, light won one time, that was the beginning of the ongoing progressive victory of light in the world because it shines on even now. It shines on even now. And so, yes, we are in a season of waiting. Yes, we are in a season where darkness still surrounds us on all sides. But light is coming. Light is here. Light is advancing. Light is winning. Light is overcoming. It is not overcome. And by the way, here again, Light has a capital L because it's not a concept, it's not a thought, it's not something that you conjure by some sort of spiritual enemy, it's a person. In other words, Jesus has come. Jesus has apparently been snuffed out only to rise again. Jesus shines on even now. Here's the reality though. Here's where it gets hard. Light shines on even now where darkness is acknowledged and faced. Light shines on even now when darkness is acknowledged, when it's stared in the face. What we wish is that Merry Christmas is enough. Light, everything's fine. That's not the rhythm of this gospel. The rhythm of this gospel is the light shines in the darkness. It comes into the darkness. It shows up. It doesn't say in light, airy, wonderful places. It goes to dark places. That's what we're going to see Jesus do again and again. It's like he chooses where he's going to go, and he chooses the darkest places, because that's where the light sometimes shines brightest. Here's what we want, though. We want to say, yeah, just do that thing. And Jesus says, yeah, first we got we to acknowledge the darkness. Where's the darkness? Where's that light got to shine? 
Can I be more practical with you, right? There is no true, this was our other uh, 200 um, discipleship course this last semester, is seeking justice and mercy, right? There is no true doing of justice without first facing, naming, and acknowledging injustice. We all want to say everything's fine in culture and society and between ethnicities and everything's great. Why can't we all just say that? It's not the rhythm of the gospel. Rhythm of the gospel is, no, there's darkness there. There's injustice in the world. There's people being hurt, marginalized, silenced actively right now. Without acknowledging that, no true light. The church says dumb things to people who are hurting and in grief. Like, there's a purpose for everything. God's going to teach you a lesson through this. Yeah, but Jesus is still good, isn't he? Not that any of that isn't true. But can I just say that true healing in the midst of grief, true care in the midst of grief, you got to acknowledge hurt and pain. you got to acknowledge loss. you got to say, I can't imagine what it feels like to be where you are. I can't imagine how dark it must be there. As someone who has been in grief fairly recently, I have never been insulted by someone saying, hey, it must be really hard that your mom died so suddenly. I've never been like, oh, I wasn't thinking about that for days. Thanks for bringing it up, right? It's like, thank you for meeting me in that pit, for jumping down in here and saying, it's dark in here. You've been in here a long time. That's rough. Do that, and then tell me you're going to pray for me. Then pray for me and say, Lord Jesus, light of the world, would you come, would, 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 would you light a some sort of something in the life of this person? Bring light, Lord Jesus, right? But we want to skip that. We like the idea that the gospel brings forgiveness of sin. Now your sins are forgiven in Jesus. Come on out right? Unfortunately, there's a process by which that sin gets forgiven and that is activated in our lives. That's the biblical concept of repentance. It's saying not just sin as a concept, this that I've done, this that I'm struggling with, this way in which I am falling short, this pattern in my life that hurts and wounds other people, right? That's what repentance is. It's just staring and acknowledging and naming the darkness in our life. And then guess what happens? Real forgiveness comes, right? The, the great German uh, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, sometimes the reason why we don't actually experience real forgiveness, real cleansing from our sin, is because we're trying to absolve ourselves by saying, well, I know about it. I, I've acknowledged it in me, so I guess I'm forgiven. He's like, you go to a brother or sister and confess that. You say, here's my darkness, and you let that person speak over you, hey, can I pray for you and bring the light of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus over you? Suddenly, there's an actual sense, right? This is, this is who we are, right? Why? This is the rhythm of the gospel in a darkened world, right? No resurrection apart from death. No, no eternal life apart from bearing a cross first. This is just irreducibly what it means to be followers of Jesus. This is the rhythm of the universe such as we have made it. Because here's what a universe that has been made in our image means. Here's what a universe that we have remade to be characterized by our darkness. It needs nothing short of a new creation. That's what we're watching here. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. You know what that's saying? Creation, creation, creation. 
right? I want you to be thinking in creational categories. Creation, creation. Why? Because the rest of this gospel will point to when Jesus showed up in human flesh, this is like Genesis 1, part 2. Genesis 1, redone. New creation. In the beginning was the word, the word was God, and there was light there. Now Jesus steps into a dark world, and he doesn't, he doesn't say, now what am I going to do? He says, I'm still the source of light. I'm still the source of all that. Not the source of my mic. There we go. Okay. Um, is He is, apparently. Thank you, Jesus. Um, and he says, I'm the one who can remake this, right? This is why you will hear me say again and again, Christianity is not a worldview. It is not a moral system. At essence, it's the only solution to the fact that we are spiritually dead. We are creatures who are living in a creation characterized by darkness. And the only thing that can bring us to life is someone with the power to bring new life. That's what Jesus does. But he doesn't do it apart from us acknowledging first that we need it, that it's a reality that characterizes what's in me and what's all around me. And so let's not be happy, happy Christians who say, yay, it's Christmas and everything's fine. Say, no, 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 there's two faces to Advent. There's the face of merriment because there is hope in the world. There is hope. There is one who has come and is coming again and who can meet you in that here and now. But it also means that we're waiting because that's what Advent means. It means the arrival hasn't fully happened yet. And so let's be people who are willing to actually face that darkness. Here's the true nature of who we are. I love these, these last couple verses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. First, just a cool little literary thing here. Who, who's this John? Yeah, John the Baptist is who he's immediately talking about. You notice he doesn't call him John the Baptist? Guess who else it seems like he's toying with talking about? Himself. Yeah. It seems like mo most agree. This is the levels that the Gospel of John is going to work at. You're going to get better and better at reading John. Is the reason he doesn't name John the Baptist the way the others do is because he's toying with the idea that there's actually a pre-ministry John who bears witness to Jesus, pre-ministry of Jesus John who bears witness to Jesus, and then there's kind of a post-ministry post-ministry of Jesus, John, who bears witness. He's probably toying with that idea. I just love that. Um, give you a little sense of what a genius we're going to be interacting with over these next couple months. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I said we're going to talk about three things. One, the true nature of Jesus, pre-existent, pre-incarnate, son of God, the source of all creation, the source of all light, I said, we'll talk about the true nature of the world, the world beset by darkness, in which light has come, though, and that light is advancing and shines on even now. Here's the true nature of us. Here's what I love. We are up in the clouds theologically. We're interacting with all these philosophical schools, and then all of a sudden, like every single gospel does, we land firmly on the ground. There was a man named John, right? It's almost, <laughs> this, this just sounds like every beginning of every human story ever. Who's this John? He's kind of John the Baptist. He's like a wild man. He's like a kind of a social outcast. This is not like, um, this is just not the person that you would think God would choose to announce the coming of himself into the world, right? We won't get into that. 
Um, we will when, when we have a little interaction with John the Baptist in the gospel. But just suffice to say, going from Jesus, the pre-incarnate son of God, to John the Baptist, it's quite a leap. It's, I think it's to remind us of who we are. And I think it's saying, I, I, sometimes I can't help but think that like things that God chose to do in and through the, the ministry of Jesus were like very targeted. And I think he chose John the Baptist because John the Baptist was like a super bizarre dude. Like he's out there eating honey and locusts, right? Like we do that as a joke, right? Like, and he's just out there like, this is my food. And he's got like a camel toga on and all this. And you're like, this is the guy. This is the guy. I think what this is saying, what the rest of the Gospel of John is saying, is that sometimes it's the people who are closest to God who completely miss him. And sometimes it's the least likely people who totally get it. Because this is who we are. We are people who presume to know how God works, who God is, what God's ways are, and we think that we can get out ahead of it. And God is always zigging when we're zagging kind of a thing, right? Our true nature, and it's right here. What was John the Baptist born to do? He was born to be a witness. This is the, in the original language here, this is the word martyr, which we've turned into a martyr as someone who, who dies um, witnessing. But it's actually a much more general, it's something that we're actually all called to do, um, is to be martyrs to Jesus. Do you hear what this is saying? It's such a beautiful way to land this. Is it saying, now we're going to talk about humanity, and what humanity's most essential nature is, is not to be the source of light. You were never born to be the source of light in this universe, right? And, and whatever sort of westernized self-esteem curriculum has told you that you're a snowflake or whatever, or this little light of mine and all that stuff, right? Like, that's a Christian song, by the way, and this little light of mine is Jesus, it's person. It ain't you, but we sing it as though it's kids, right? Like, um, they were never, you were never meant to be the source of life in the world. Instead, you were meant to be a witness to the light. In other words, you were meant to be reflective. You were not meant to be a lamp, you were meant to be a mirror. You, by your very way of being in the world, were meant to say, he's the light. That's the light. You want light? Ain't me. That's the light. And by our way of being in the world, we bear witness to the light. <clears throat> Which, given everything we've said, if I had to summarize that, is we live in light of the true nature of Jesus, and we live in the true na nature of the world. That's what it means to be reflective of the light. We say, yeah, there's darkness. Yeah, there's darkness. That's why you need a light. And that light, he has a name, and his name is Jesus. And I think the way that we do that in this Advent season is everything that I was just talking about. We have to be those willing to acknowledge the darkness in order to receive the full overcoming of the light in those ways. And so as we come even to this table this morning, I would just ask you to consider, where maybe are you ignoring darkness and wanting life to light to come apart from acknowledging darkness in your life. That could be ways in which you have shut your eyes to injustice around you or things that God is calling you to do, brave things that he's calling you to do, ways in which you can speak up and speak out. That could be your own suffering and loss and grief and whatever in this season that you said, not during Christmas time, not during Christmas time. I think as crazy as this is, Advent is a time where Christians are uniquely invited into our grief and lament. Like for most of church history, Advent was actually a season most deeply of lament, not of Christmas happy-pappy carols. 
it was actually a time to say, hey, bring your brokenness. Because then Christmas itself can kind of explode onto the scene and truly be a source of hope. Christmas, y'all, that was celebrated. That's been celebrated by Christians forever. Advent is a time to acknowledge that dark. So maybe it's your own grief and loss. Maybe it's someone around you who's grief and loss. You've, you've kind of held at arm's length. We do that. Can I tell you we do that? We're a little scared of other people's loss and grief. I've seen that in, in a thousand ways. And it's understandable. It's not because we're bad people. Again, Advent is a time to maybe move towards that and say, I might not get this right. I might be one of those Christians who says something dumb. But to move towards someone in that is to acknowledge that there's darkness there and to, and to meet them in that. And maybe it's your own sin. We don't think of Christmas and repentance as going together very often. But again, Advent is a season where God says, hey, this is a time to take stock of darkness in your life and to bring that to me and to know it really will be forgiven insofar as it comes to the light. Because that light is nothing if it's not forgiveness and grace and mercy and a new creative act within, from the inside out to make you completely new, to replace that darkness, to allow light to shine on even now. Let's pray.